The opinions and statements expressed in the following program do not necessarily reflect those of WWDB, its staff, or management. Inspirational women are increasingly popular in the news and media, but many go unheard and their stories are never told. Women to Watch with Susan Rocco captures the stories of many women who truly make a difference. Women to Watch is the vehicle for developing new leaders, encouraging younger generations, and in building self-esteem for future entrepreneurs. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome back to another week of Women to Watch here on WWDB Talk 860 and womentowatch.net. I'm happy to be back in the studio after a wonderful weekend at the beach for Easter, and I hope everyone had a wonderful uh, holiday as well. A couple of quick notes before we bring on our guests this afternoon. Um, if you're listening and you'd like to join the conversation, we'd love to hear from you. So I want to give out that number. It's 888-329-3306. That's 888-329-3306. And be sure to go to our website at womentowatch.net. That's women, the number two, watch.net, N-E-T, for our lineup and updates and, and lots of information about our guests and um, upcoming uh, events that we have going on. Um, another quick note is that I wanted to uh, mention that I'm going to be emceeing a really wonderful fundraiser this Thursday night in Westchester. It is to benefit um, an organization that is a really unique organization benefiting and supporting the homeless um, and poor of the greater Westchester area. The name of the organization is actinfaith.org. Um, if you go to actinfaith.org, you can get information. And I'm going to be there from 6 to 9 at the Milestone events. Um, and we're going to have a really great time with all of the local chefs are going to be in attendance and providing uh, food for the evening. And there's going to be an auction. Um, it's going to be a really wonderful event. So if you're able to join us, we'd love to have you. You can call 484 324 8492 for information, and that's 484-324-8492. I'd like to bring our guest on now, who um, I'm extremely excited to have with us this afternoon. We're going to be learning a great deal from this woman. Her name is Ashley Swartz. She is the CEO and founder of Furious Corporation, which is an advertising platform uh, designed for television broadcasters and publishers. Ashley, welcome to the show. Hi, Susan. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me. It's wonderful to have you. I'm assuming you're calling in from New York? Uh, I am, yes. I wasn't able to make it down to Philly today, so thank you for letting me be virtual. Yeah, that's okay. I, you know, I'm always um, wanting to have my guests live in the studio, but fortunately, you know, we can do this by phone. People are all over the place these days, and um, we have some great engineers here who make it work. So happy to have you. So listen, um, you know about Women to Watch and, and how we do the show here, and um, I love to start out asking my guests about their background and growing up years. And I, I would say that you had somewhat of a unconventional upbringing um, from what I've read about your bio and, and your background. So I'm wondering if you can talk just for a few minutes about growing up in Harrisburg. Um, <laughs> Pennsylvania girl. <laughs> that's right. That's right. We share that in common. Um, so, yeah, talk about those years and, and, of course, talk about the years that you um, – 
you know, lived with your dad. You were raised by your dad, I understand, after the age of 12, which I'm sure, you know, had an impact on, on you and, and, um, what you decided to pursue. So go ahead and tell us about that for a few minutes. Uh, of course. And thanks for the invitation to do so. Um, I, I grew up in, in Harrisburg. I'm sort of small town girl. Uh, you know, come from a very sort of working class family. Uh, my, you know, for my parents' divorce shortly thereafter, I uh, moved in with my father, uh, who at the time was a single dad. Shortly thereafter, remarried. But you know, I think it's it's interesting, right? I, the way I describe myself a lot is that um, if you if you sort of you know look up the definition of alpha female in the dictionary, uh, and there's probably like my picture there, right? I have <laughs> I think a lot of and I, I think a lot of my best attributes. I mean, I get from both my mother and my father sort of shared, but. You know, definitely uh, the upbringing of a father and also a father who was a vet. Um, uh, one of the reasons I was able to make it today is we just bet, went back to Vietnam with my father as a family, uh, which is a trip he's wanted to take, you know, 40 years. He has two Purple Hearts. Um, you know, just sort of coming from that background, uh, what my father did and sort of work was a path that I followed. I mean, ironically enough, you know, I, I'm, he supported me to move overseas, as did, you know, my mother as well. But I moved overseas at 19 and came back, sort of finished undergrad in the U.S. And, um, you know, it was interesting how a lot of the thematics from my childhood sort of carry forward into, uh, you know, my, my sort of education and my work life. I mean, I my father coached multiple sports. I played a sport every season, you know. I was sort of very active in that regard and, you know, also kind of at the same time was this very active feminist. I joke around that I was probably born with my now membership card in my back pocket at a quite a young age. <laughs> and my father was sort of, you know, as a single dad, didn't know how to deal with this very rebellious, but yet, you know, sort of highly accomplished and intelligent young woman. It was sort of a mixed metaphor for him. And he just kind of stood back and let me, you know, define my own path. And after I finished undergrad at NYU at Stern um, in finance in New York, I returned back to Pennsylvania to work for, ironically, the same company for which my father worked, from which he retired after 39 years, uh, to work in a different area of business, but just kind of, you know, interestingly enough, came full circle and sort of followed, not necessarily in his footsteps, you know, my father was a supply chain uh, manager and I was a, you know, a finance gal. Um, but I learned a lot about how to look at business through his eyes. You know, he's a problem solver. He's a, a very sort of linear thinker. And I think that has carried forward. And a lot of my experience in my first career in manufacturing finance, which the company for which we both worked was a manufacturing company, um, you know, that ha has, ironically enough, is a lot of the foundations from which I've, you know, I've had the idea for the software platform I'm building for media and television today and learned so much that has been foundational that I've carried forward into other industries throughout my career. And sort of, you know, I'm an athlete, the sports metaphors, looking at business, you know, through the lens of an athlete. My Having raised by my father really has given me this ability because I've consistently been in sort of very male-dominated industries like manufacturing and finance and now technology and software and media and advertising. Um, it's really given me, you know, not just sort of a level of comfort, um, as it's quite often the only woman at the table, but it's also given me a vocabulary and a lexicon with which I think that I can relate to my male colleagues and counterparts parts in a different way. 
Um, and, you know, at the end of the day, you may be faster, stronger, you know, better at a sport. It's always a really interesting mix uh, when you're at the table with your male counterparts as well. And that's something my father gave me, I think, also. Yeah. So tell me about what, what kind of influence did your mom have on you? Uh, my mom, you know, is a is an incredibly strong-willed, uh, independent woman. You know, I mean, shortly after my sort of my parents' divorce, you know, she took care of a house and a property by herself, and um, you know, she's uh, she's incredibly passionate, like me. I think I'm very fortunate that if you look at my collective sort of best attributes, or at least the attributes that are most foundational to my success, they are really a sort of even mix of my father and my brother, uh, my mother, uh, mother rather. So for that, I'm very grateful. Well, it's interesting to me because you spoke a lot about, um, you know, the your your career and how you were able to kind of um, be in there with, you know, the men and, and not be intimidated and have the confidence. But it when I read your bio, um, you said that at second grade, I think it was, you know, you had already made a statement <laughs> about wanting to be the first female president. So uh, it sounds to me like, you you know, it's in your DNA. You were born with this kind of, you know, uh, toughness about you. Would you say that's true? I, I think, yeah, I think that's fair. Um, <laughs> uh, ironically enough, I used to fight full contact. That was my competitive stress management sports in which I participated at a very early <laughs> out of university. Uh, it's interesting. You know, if you look at how I ended up where I did, uh, where I did specifically my first career in finance, um, you know, yes, I, I wanted to be president. You know, I was uh, – I, I sort of graduated from high school a year early and started uh, college a year early um, and uh, became, you know, the youngest sort of student class president at our local uh, college, uh, you know, before I matriculated to sort of a large university. And I've always kind of been very politically active. And it's interesting during that period of sort of, you know, at leaving high school, going into uh, university, um, I started volunteering and then ended up actually working in a women's reproductive health care clinic. My goal here is to not go down a political sort of route, but just, you know, have it be said that I saw a lot of women come into my clinic. It was a private clinic, um, and I saw that regardless of age, age you know, gender, class, uh, you know, race, all the sort of attributes, um, uh, what I found most common, the common th- thematic through all the women that entered my clinic was that most of them did not know how to manage their money, and they did not have money management skills or mm-hmm. financial independence. And, you know, I had at a point in my time, sort of, I was determined, you know, after like marching in D.C. and San Francisco for various causes and, you know, being a now sort of member, like, and all these things, I had thought I was really going to go into women's studies and sort of ultimately end up, you know, doing public policy or running for office in D.C. Right. And I think this combination of sort of identifying that and realizing, you know, economic power, um, and how important that is for independence and for women in general, but also then going and getting a private education and being incredibly in debt for having paid for my, you know, working class girl going to Stern and paying private school tuition. Um, I was in debt and I needed to get a private sector job to pay my student loans, which is really interesting, Susan, because when we sort of get to the sort of point of arrival, which is today where I'm at, the idea of economic power and sort of the thematic of access to capital has really come for full circle of where I am in my career now and, you know, continuing kind of the legacy that I want to build um, you know, which sort of, when I reflect back, ironically was seated in my teen years. It's, it's really interesting how life works. It is. It is. And, you know, it, 
it's interesting that you're saying that because as I was reading information and, and your story, I kind of wondered why you didn't take that route. I thought it sounds to me like you were someone as a young girl that would have, you know, gone into politics, you know, been in a policymaking position. Um, definitely, you know, going and getting your your now membership card in high school, that's not very typical, I would say, of young <laughs> girls today. How did that go over with your peers? You know, um, and also what kind of high school did you go to that, um, you know, instilled in you this kind of independence and, and uh, interest? Um, I'm a public school girl. And okay. uh, I actually ended up going to, when I moved in with my father, I went from what was sort of a very you know, somewhat of a, a suburban landscape where my mom lived to a very urban kind of mixed, you know, uh, ethnicity mm-hmm. uh, high school. Um, you know, I, it's, it's interesting. It, it, first of all, it's never too late, right? That's to run right. For office. That um, is right. Perhaps with, wis- with wisdom uh, over years, perhaps it becomes a less attractive or aspirational um, position. Mm-hmm. Uh, and ultimately, I, I think I'm glad I didn't. You know, I was really, I was, I mean, I was kind of angry, right? I think a lot of early sort of activists, um, you know, whether it's the fact that I got in an airplane to, uh, to march for immigrant rights in, you know, San Francisco, I think when I was like 17, um, and various, you know, marches in DC, et cetera. I think I'm just, I'm not really angry anymore. I'm passionate, but I'm not angry. And I think that now, you know, sort of and that comes with age and various things, right? But later in life, I think that ultimately I'm, I'm happy that I didn't make that decision because I think that it would have been slightly misguided if I was, you know, driving public, driving public policy at an early age. And ultimately, you know, money is power. I, I mean, that's a very, you know, practical statement. There's, that's, a, that's an objective statement. You know, there's, nothing to be inferred from that because there's nothing implied. And so ultimately I think that my contribution thus far has been, um, you know, it's been in creating jobs and creating and, and contributing to economic wealth um, and opportunity for women and otherwise, you know, very sort of male dominated uh, areas of professional and industry uh, that, you know, opportunity that otherwise would maybe have not been afforded to them. It's being an act, you know, proactive sort of mentor. And ultimately it's helping, it's giving, my goal was to eventually sort of come full circle and, you know, not create a paradigm where women do not have uh, to sort of, you know, travel the same road that I did. There's more opportunity, access to capital, things like that, you know, but ultimately I think that, I would be much more impactful if I were to take a position in office at a later stage in life, not just because most importantly, I know how to run a profit and loss statement now, which I think is a skill set that is, you know, is, is lacking um, <laughs> quite often in public office and public officials and how to, you know, sort of run an efficient business. Um, but ultimately, I think that my ability to, to channel my passion in a much more productive and effective way is something I've had to learn in order to have a seat at the table as a woman in business. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's something that would serve me if I chose to take a career change later in life. Yeah. You know what? I, th- I think that's really insightful. I think um, to do anything um, when you have anger as, as a motivator is not a good thing. Um, and, you know, you, you said something very key there that, you know, when you were younger, you, you were kind of driven. And where do you think that anger came from, by the way? What, what was it that, you know, why did you have the anger rather than the passion? Um, you know, I, I don't, 
I think I, you know, I saw my mom struggle. Um, I, I just think it was sort of an early lack of understanding of why I was treated differently, you know, cause it's not rational, right? Let's, I mean, sexism and gender bias is not rational. So when you're young, you know, and you're a kid, you're looking for understanding and, and you're looking for ways to ultimately, you know, comprehend your world. Um, and I just was so blessed to have amazing female teachers in primary school. Um, you know, I was blessed to have a father that encouraged athletics. I was blessed to have a grandmother that, you know, I was sort of that latchkey kid. My grandmother cared for us before school and after school in the summer. And she was the matriarch of the household, you know, the, the mother of five boys. Um, I was the first girl in the family, if you will, right? So I didn't get a pink bike or a Barbie house. I got a big wheel. Um, and I just think these, you know, this sort of like this family message of, I'm one of the boys, right? And I and there's sort of no difference. And then um, you know these these men that influenced me in my life, from my uncle to my father, et cetera. And then sort of going into the world outside of my family and not absolutely having some, such a different sort of experience. That incongruency was something with which I really struggled at a young age and didn't understand. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's uh, it's we all have to channel our energy in, in one place or another. And that was just kind of the, the area that I chose to, to channel it. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I see a commonality um, when I interview women such as yourself, you know, leaders, successful women, when they have men who have been strong supporters and advocates for them. Um, I, I see such an influence there. It, it seems to be um, prevalent that, that women who are leaders have had some type of male um, figure in their life that, you know, pretty much said you can, you can do it. You can do anything you set out to do. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I think that if you look at, um, you know, I think if you look at women and also, you know, one of the things that I think is really interesting to me that I just, uh, very humbly describe myself is, you know, people ask me about my leadership style. And I would say that I am a, I am male in my leadership style and very female or feminine in my management style. And some sort of, you know, feminists would have an issue applying any gender attributes to, uh, to sort of, you know, styles in any way. But um, I think that's one of the things that has, you know, I think one of the, the de- there are two sort of things that make the difference between a manager and a leader, right? One is that they're not afraid to hire people that are smarter than they are. Mm-hmm. And I think everybody with whom I work and works for me today and has in the, in the past is probably smarter than I am. Um, and secondly, you know, they're um, sort of very comfortable in, in kind of not mincing words and being specific and direct. And that traditionally is a very male quality, right? Um, I think in a leadership sense, you know, I'm very direct and specific and kind of fearless. I mean, look, my company is called Furious Corp because the nickname and the moniker that I've earned in my industry is Red Fury. I'm a redhead for anybody that hasn't seen my <laughs> picture. Um, you know, and that was given for very good reasons. Fury because, you know, the way that the, the nickname came along, it was just it's the passion and the intensity. Right. Um, it's not anger. Uh, and, you know, as a leader, I think that is what I sort of uh, I project and I exemplify on um, that kind of fearlessness and that level of confidence, which makes some people uncomfortable coming out of a woman. Right. Um, but my management style is approachability. And I think maybe also, you know, because I am a woman, you know, sort of my age, you know, mid to late 30s, maybe 40. Um, 
and uh, and I don't have children of my own. Um, you know, I don't have my own family right now. Uh, I I my, that my I'm able to to bring that to my work, right? So approachability and creating a safe space for my employees and for my team and my peers, for that matter. You know, to really sort of. Uh, be true and be open um, once they enter, you know, that is, which is the sanctity of my office. But yet, you know, again, my sort of leadership style has been the sign that's hung on my office for the last sort of 10 years, which is put on your big girl pants and deal with it. Like, you know, at the end of the day, we got a job to get done. And I think that duality and that combination has been a balance that, you know, one, I've gotten from both my parents, but also women that have a very strong male influence are able to get, the confidence that they need to bring that fearlessness and that, you know, that sort of sense of, of deserving to have a seat at the table and never second guessing it or apologizing for it. I think that a lot comes from strong male influencers. Well, and, and also what a great combination. If you're, if you're leading um, without the insecurities, but you're doing it with positivity, I think that's an incredible way to get your team to, you know, to, to be motivated you know, and, and to want to work for you and with you. Yeah. And what, you know, I was sort of, I started to say kind of two attributes of the leader, the first being you hire smarter people than you are. The second uh, that I, that I was remiss to mention is that, you know, I think that a, a good leader has a bench of like a team of really smart people that will follow them from a company to another company. If they start starting a company and, you know, are asking people to take a risk and to share that risk with them. Um, you know, I feel really fortunate that I have a, a sort of cachet of just amazing talent and people that if I asked you, you know, would join my team and will join my team as it grows. Um, and that is, there's no greater sense of success than the people that surround you um, and looking to them as a reflection of who you are, because your team really is the reflection of, of who you are more than anything you do as a leader or as a manager. Um, and as a founder in particular, I've realized that to be true and I am humbled and grateful every day for my team. Yeah, that's wonderful. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about, you, you know, you've lived and worked, um, spent significant time overseas, uh, in Europe in Asia and Central America, you know, very key places. And I was wondering what that experience, um, has has done as far as your perspective on um, not only, you know, global economy, the world living in, in such a global time, but also the difference in the cultures that you learned and seen uh, when it comes to women's rights from spending time in those three particular countries? Uh, so, it, um, you know, it's been a very, I think the, the first sort of consistent thematic is that I was, you know, I, in my 20s, one of the reasons that I don't have a family of my own just yet is because I spent most of my 20s living overseas alone, right? And quite often alone in places, Northern Europe is kind of different, right? But Latin America, Asia, um, you know, as a tall redhead, um, I don't look like, I, I'm definitely not a local, right? So that could be very isolating at times. I think, you know, just the circumstance gave me an incredible, you know, sort of ability to be very introspective and self-reflective. Um, and that's something that has served me well, specifically in more to more in my failures than it has in my successes as, as a professional and just as a person. Uh, but I think the cultural opportunities that were afforded to me were, uh, 
have just served me well, just, you know, from the perspective of, um, you know, I did my MBA in Europe as well. And I went to a program that was like 119 students, 42 countries, 45 languages. Right. So I, you know, the ability to work in a multicultural environment, uh, you know, it, it, it transcends culture, right? It, 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 it's gender, it's bringing different, you know, it's, it's bringing the brain trust and the mind trust of different industry and stakeholders together. And I think, you know, specifically looking at the global economy and how small our world is ultimately and what it means to be successful and the idea of building and founding a company that today is quite small and it's really focused on the U.S. market. But actually, um, my company is an Israeli company with, you know, my business partner and co-founder and CTO are in Israel. My development team is there because it's the best world-class talent I've ever had in my life. One of our largest customers uh, is the second largest broadcaster in Mexico. Um, and our, you know, business headquarters is in New York. Um, and we're launching our product here. And one of our most recent investors is a Chinese fund because they see the growth opportunity and expansion uh, for our product in China with media companies there. So, you know, sort of looking at how things come full circle, and the ability to kind of, you know, hyper focus, but then to take that step back and have a long tail vision of building a team, building a product um, for scale is something that I wouldn't have had I not kind of taken those great risks and also sacrifices at a very early stage of my career. And I do believe that in the long run, it's going to help, you know, pay dividends for the, the organizations that I serve and for the company and product that I'm building now. So what would you say you it, when we talk about women and women's rights and 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 different cultures and how they treat their women what can you talk about some of the differences you saw um between Europe Asia and Central America Yeah I mean I think so it's interesting cuz my perspective on Asia is recently informed from my you know just I literally just returned from uh Vietnam and Cambodia last Sunday mm -hmm. um and that was a holiday right but ended up actually having a new business idea while I was there but what was so amazing about Asia is just kind of in the conversations I had with a lot of you know uh people there locals like the world really is run by women you know whether it's like the markets or it's restaurants and the hospitality industry you know, it is women that are out there selling and pushing product and, you know, really moving the economy. And that was just sort of this, this reflection that I had coming out of Asia. Um, you know, I think that the family dynamic and family values in Asia and how women are the matriarch, um, you know, whether it's China, it's Japan, et cetera, I think that is an incredible, um, you know, that sort of now as as these economies are changing and women are being more open and there's you know sort of greater rights of equality in the workplace i think that they're going to you know they're maybe you know 10 years behind the 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 us or sort of europe but i think you're going to see you know women's equality uh and i just saw you know sort of there's there, i just saw an article in the fortune updater uh, update about a, a a female billionaire in china right i mean independently actually i believe it was hong kong independent self-made woman um and you're we're seeing more and more female billionaires that are not family money that are self-made women coming out of mainland china which is really interesting um i think india having traveled there and spent time and worked there they've got a long way to come and um and i'll leave it at that as far as a culture and a, and, a, and you know just for women's rights it's quite 
it's an appalling state. Mm-hmm. Um, Europe, you know, the comment I make about Europe is that, you know, the glass ceiling isn't any lower, although, and I'm specifically looking at Northern Europe, like Scandinavia, Germany, Holland, uh, and, you know, in some ways the UK, um, you know, the glass ceiling isn't higher, right? Even though these are socialist democratic societies um, and on paper, they have, you know, better rights, paternity, maternity leave, healthcare, et cetera. Um, it's just a little bit more polished. And having specifically, you know, worked in Germany and Holland and worked for a Scandinavian company, a Swedish company for years, um, you know, it's, it's, it's not really different. It's just that I think that although the sort of macro policies and, you know, the things that are and kind of, you know, the sort of entitlements and rights of women and men seem more equal, there are subversive things. Like, for example, in Holland, right, there's really no full-time daycare. So somebody, so although women and men have equal paternity and maternity leave and equal pay rights, et cetera, you know, ultimately someone has to work only half days and part time if you choose to have a child in Holland. Um, and this is sort of, you know, this is many years ago, but it, it always ended up being the woman mm-hmm. uh, quite often, mm-hmm. um, you know, and sort of there are subversive politics and policies that ultimately end up perpetuating um, gender bias. Uh, in, you know, in uh, countries. And I, that's what I sort of saw a lot of in Europe. In Latin America, you know, it's still, it's the Latin cultures and countries haven't, you know, are, a lot of that relates back to kind of family values and things. But I do believe it's changing. Um, I just look at my client in Mexico and the lieutenant of, you know, one of the sort of the right hand of the CEO of the broadcaster for whom I work is a young woman who is hungry and is, you know, dog on bone and, and driven and she's creating opportunities. So I think, you know, it's, it's changing in Latin America as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, it's, a, it's an exciting time. I think it's, it's a scary time for women in many countries as well, right. um, you know, politically and geopolitically. But I do believe also that it's opportun- an opportunistic time for women. It is. It is. Uh, there's a shift for sure. Um, we talk about that all the time on the show. Um, listen, Ashley, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, I want to talk a little bit about raising capital as an entrepreneur. We'll be right back. Great. I look forward to it. Where does one turn when faced with the devastating loss of hair from cancer or other medical conditions? When Jamie Levin, owner of Wig Elegance, Wigadoo, and Rosalind Stella's Wig Boutique, lost her own mother to cancer in 2009, she and her husband Rob decided to take over the full-service family-owned wig salons to honor her mother's memory. What their company offers is the personal and private experience that men, women, and children deserve at such a difficult time. To learn more about their unique services and warm and compassionate staff at all three salons, such as a free consultation with expertise, full education, private booths, and clean set and cutting services, go to wigelegancewigs.com or call 215-945-4900. That's wigelegancewigs.com. 215-945-4900. That phone number again is 215-945-4900. And ask for your special offer as a listener to the show on selected items such as $50 off a synthetic wig or $100 off a human hair wig. That's wigelegancewigs.com. 
Welcome back, everyone, to another week of Women to Watch here on WWDB Talk 860 and womentowatch.net. We're joined this afternoon by Ashley Swartz, the CEO and founder of Furious Corporation. And if you're listening and you'd like to call in with a question for Ashley, we'd love to hear from you. The number is 888-329-3306. That's 888-329-3306. Ashley, you know, it's such a a hot topic, um, entrepreneurship and women. And just as you were discussing about women in, in other countries, you know, trying to allow them opportunities to start their own businesses and companies is something that we're, you know, we're rooting for. We want to see more of it. And, of course, one of the biggest challenges is raising capital and raising money. Um, I'd love for you to give, you know, some of your advice and some of the strategies you used yourself as a serial entrepreneur in case there's someone listening that's, um, you know, venturing out into that area? Uh, happily. I mean, I think before that, Susan, you know, I think it's, it's, uh, it's important to kind of uh, set the stage or, you know, level set. Um, raising money, raising capital specifically, capital from angel investors and venture capital um, is the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. And, you know, I've sort of helped uh, when, you know, right before, before kind of the, the internet bubble burst, you know, 2006 to kind of 2008, nine, you know, I was kind of a wing woman helping a venture back startup to which I sold a company raised before and, you know, but I've and I've built a couple businesses, but really bootstrapped it and self-funded it. And this is the first time that I've been a founder, the founder, front and center CEO. And oh, by the way, at the pinnacle of my career, right? Like humbly, the the area, the business problems with which I'm, you know, trying to, that I'm trying to solve with my platform and product and software are humbly the business problems, uh, you know, in an area which I'm probably a, one of the thought leaders in my in my industry, right? Um, so, and I'm a little experienced, I'm older at a later stage in my career. I'm not the 29 year old, you know, young man in a hoodie. Um, <laughs> and you know, I really do believe, I, I mean, it's, it has, it has been the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. And the last two years of my life have probably been the hardest. And it's, it's, it's not been as a founder and because, you know, I'm putting my, my entire, you know, life savings online and I'm more broke than I've ever been in the last five years of my career, right? Like, it's not for all the reasons that it should be. It's the process of raising capital is, um, it's hard. And, you know, you go out and you start a company and you have an idealistic, you know, perspective and why you want to build a, you know, build a product and, and what you want to build. And you ultimately end up that being the founder you learn that being a founder is as much about raising money as it is building a great product and a team. Right. And I think the thing that has made it the hardest for me is that it, it evoked and became a journey about being a journey as a woman and my femininity more than I ever thought it would. I, I never, I never thought I kind of knew it would be hard. Didn't think it would be as hard as it would be. But the reason it was so hard was because it became it became this personal, you know, battle and journey of my femininity and my identity as a woman that I that I just didn't expect. Right. I mean, 
you know, basically being a, uh, raising capital is about rejection. So as a single woman at my age, you know, literally my job is to be rejected over and over and over again, 40, 50, 60 times, right, depending on the round of capital you're raising. And I just closed my second round of capital. Um, and, you know, there's no equal opportunity employment in, in private capital, right, in venture capital or, or angel investment, right? So asking me if I'm married, you know, if I have children, I, I've debated with my girlfriends. And at one point, I literally pushed myself away from a table during an investor meeting and said, you know, well, I've debated this with my girlfriends. Do you, do you think I should wear a wedding ring? So, you know, it's, so would that change your perception of me? And, you know, and, and well, yes, maybe it, it will be less distracting. But then the question is, well, I want to have children very shortly after taking somebody's money, right? Wow. So, now, uh, that's surprising. Oh. I, that's surprising to me that those questions would come up in an investor meeting. You know, I I, sure. I could see it, you know, as small talk before you go into the <laughs> into the meeting. But as part of that decision making? Um, I mean, I've. You know, yeah, absolutely. Wow. I mean, again, this is, you know, quite often this is someone giving their own personal money. I've, when, uh, when I was working with my, a former business partner, um, in the early stages of, of, you know, the company and she was potentially joining us because my partner's in Israel. So a lot of this is me on my own. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think also like a, you know, a redhead, tall redhead, strong personality, a bit fiery going in and talking about building an enterprise SaaS platform, you know, a sort of B2B product is like, doesn't compute, you know? Um, and I remember a meeting with my, my former female, uh, the company I founded previous to this, my female business partner, they were going into a investor meeting and she was carrying a bag, which was a Prada bag. And she was a very successful career. And one of the investors in the room looked at her and said, wow, you know, that's a really expensive bag. You don't need my money. And I thought, I wonder if a man has ever had that said to him for the type of watch he was wearing or shoes. Right. Right. Yeah. So, you know, I just think it's, and it's interesting, right? So before this journey, when I first, when the last, you know, kind of always been being a woman in tech and this intersection of different industries, manufacturing first, et cetera, I really thought it was about, you know, young women in tech and women in STEM, you know, science, technology, engineering, and math, and, you know, getting girls that, you know, to not, to find this stuff exciting and to give them runway and an opportunity and have a seat at the table and jobs and Ultimately, coming out the, the tail end of this last round that I raised, I had this realization that it's about access to capital and economic power. And there are too few, one, there's just too little money going to female founders. Um, to, you know, and, and, and I don't understand that because if you look at the numbers, right. you know, female founders do better. They run right. more efficient companies. Mm-hmm. They, their burn rates are lower. You know, because they do more with less because they have less access to capital. You know, typically the return on investment is greater because they're raising less money. Um, companies with women board members typically perform better, right? Like there are, there's a plethora of empirical evidence that suggests that women are a good investment regardless of what vertical they're in. You've had some amazing female founders like That's Cloudflare, right. like in your show, right? Yes, right. I mean, amazing women, and yet we struggle. And so – this idea of addressing the disparity, you know, with by trying to close the gap on access to capital and, you know, that kind of that this disparity that has just proliferated as a result is something that, you know, I really look, you know, beyond this, you know, this business that I'm building as the legacy that I want to establish. And it's I 
I'm just incredibly impassioned about it and believe so strongly in it. Well, it's all it's all interesting when we try to um, figure out why is it that you know with all of the support and organizations and workshops and and symposiums and all of these things that we have around the topic of women in leadership, um, why the numbers are still so low? Why do you think, I think that women is? really struggle? Well, one, because I do think there's gender bias, and I do think it's a it's a boys' club. I mean, especially on the West Coast. But New York, you know, there are some amazing um, women here. Uh, you know, Joanne Wilson, um, who is the wife of Fred Wilson, is, does some amazing stuff. Um, you know, there are some really strong female investors uh, in New York. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, it is mostly men allocating capital. Um, and, you know, you look at their, some of the start, you know, the, the, the events the VC funds have, it's, you know, it's it's ping pong events, it's bowling events. Like, you know, there's no. If you look at, you know, I was just talking to one of my uh, a female investor that is a coach of mine, and she was telling me that she was hearing from a female founder that the fund, uh, one of her funds that invested in her, you know, was so excited because they like put a foosball table in the lobby and all the startups <laughs> are really excited. And like, I was like, so can we just get our nails done? Like, I mean, can we have a, you know, that's something that's great for female founders. Right. Right. And I, look, there, I'm not, I'm sorry. Anybody that wants like gender equality, that's, that's the, I'm, I don't believe in that because there's some things that women do better. So if you, if you ask for like purest equality, um, ultimately women don't have an opportunity to shine in areas where they thrive. Right. So for me, um, I think that women are inherently asking for money and help is hard for a woman and taking money is even harder. And women take that very seriously, right? You know, the swagger and the confidence that you have to have to ask someone to invest in an idea that you don't know is going to make it to build something you've never built before. You know, women aren't necessarily culturally or societally sort of, you know, trained to, um, you know, to kind of do that. That's not, it's not in our DNA necessarily, that's right? right. I that's mean, I think right. that's part of having a strong male influencer. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, deals are still done on pickup basketball games, at bars, you know, smoking cigars, at places they, women may or may not be, especially women that are, you know, maybe moms or at a different stage of their life. And ultimately, I think that, you know, we need to just simply, I, you know, there's this great book that um, a girlfriend of mine, Pamela Reifman, wrote called The Stiletto Network. Yes, she was on the show. This sort of, yeah, she was yep, actually on Pamela the show, read is, the book. Great book. Awesome. Pamela is amazing. It's a great book, so I'm so happy you read it. But it's really about this kind of, you know, this undercurrent of, you know, female economic power that is kind of under the radar and starting to really rear its head, you know, with That's right. half a billion dollar exits with women like Heidi Meisner, et cetera. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and the one thing that is beautiful about New York is we have an amazing sorority and sisterhood of female founders and investors. Like we really do help one another. It's an incredible network, right. but we have to start writing checks. Right. Right. Well, well I and think ultimately, yeah. uh, go ahead. Go ahead, Susan. No, I was just going to say, I think that creating the opportunity, you know, what we're doing now is creating these economic opportunities for ourselves because they weren't, you know, because culturally we didn't have opportunities um, in the past. Now we're creating them amongst ourselves. Yeah, and the groundswell is, I think, women, you know, as founders, right? It's success stories like guilt, things like that. You know, it's female founders, Cloudflare, it's female founder success stories. 
And ultimately, you know, the trajectory has to be that as these women exit and they create their own, you know, individual economic power and wealth, that wealth creation has to trickle back down to fund, you know, women. And that's where the groundswell and the snowball effect will occur. Yes. Like that's the only way it's going to happen, right? It has to be self-perpetuating because we can keep talking about the stats of how much money really, you know, goes to female founders. Some say it's less than five. I know the current stat was from PitchBook published a few weeks ago was 17%, but the number of female CEOs is even less, right? Um, and the number of funds that actually have a female sort of investment mandate is less than five, it's six or five right now. And, you know, a lot of them are really sort of geared towards very specific verticals that are more traditional areas of female founders. Um, but they're doing amazing things. You know, Susan Line is a great example of Built by Girls, which is a fund. Golden Seeds is on their second fund. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's great, the female founders fund, there's great stuff happening, but ultimately it's about building companies, exiting, getting a payout and making sure we're not screwed and our, our equity is not diluted as female founders and making sure that we get what we deserve. Because quite often, if you look at the cap tables of female founders, you know, we end up not keep retaining what we deserve comparatively um, or getting compensated what we deserve as founding teams and really fighting and advocating for ourselves and then putting that back into the ecosystem and, you know, and, and allocating that capital. That's, that's the only way I see it happening. Yeah. Well, guess what? I, I think it is happening. You know, I, I, I'm seeing it and, and it might be on a very small level right now. You know, everything has to start somewhere. Um, Listen, we're going to take another quick break, and when we come back, I, I'd, first of all, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about your company, and um, I want to get your take on, you know, this rapid innovation that we experience in technology and how us lay people can deal with it. We'll be right back. Awesome. Where does one turn when faced with the devastating loss of hair from cancer or other medical conditions? When Jamie Levin, owner of Wig Elegance, Wigadoo, and Rosalind Stella's Wig Boutique, lost her own mother to cancer in 2009, she and her husband Rob decided to take over the full-service family-owned wig salons to honor her mother's memory. What their company offers is the personal and private experience that men, women, and children deserve at such a difficult time. To learn more about their unique services and warm and compassionate staff at all three salons, such as a free consultation with expertise, full education, private booths, and clean set and cutting services, go to wigelegancewigs.com or call 215-945-4900. That's wigelegancewigs.com. 215-945-4900. That phone number again is 215-945-4900. And ask for your special offer as a listener to the show on selected items such as $50 off a synthetic wig or $100 off a human hair wig. That's wigelegancewigs.com. Welcome back, everyone, to Women to Watch here on WWDB Talk 860. My name is Sue Rocco, and I'm speaking with Ashley Swartz uh, this afternoon. She's the CEO and founder of Furious Corporation. She's a serial entrepreneur. She's a dynamo since the second grade. <laughs> That's how I'm going to describe you, Ashley. <laughs> Um, I love it. Thank you. Yeah. Well, you know, it's so, so funny. When I read that you wanted to be, you know, the first female president, I thought, well, I do too. Let, let's do it. Let's make it happen. Um, awesome. anyway, you know, 
there is obviously we do see rapid innovation in technology, just even day to day. I get a little overwhelmed with it because I'm not in technology, and I would imagine um, people that are, people like you kind of, um, you're able to, to manage it and, and think about it not in an overwhelming way um, like the rest of us. But do you, when, I, when you think about that, in other words, um, when, when something is, is tackled and an idea is put out there and it's perfected and then consumers are using it and then the next thing you know, the next best new thing is out, is that a good thing or a bad thing? I mean, I think it's a great thing because, you know, it affords opportunity, right? And it means that success is really about, um, you know, sort of being willing to do the work, right, and not becoming complacent. Uh, I think in technology, sort of survival, rather not, I think survival is about, you know, IQ and intelligence and building good products and maintaining them and servicing them, et cetera, whether it's to consumers or, you know, business to business. Mm-hmm. But I think that thriving and flourishing is really about the EQ. It's the emotional intelligence. And that's something I think, you know, I see a lot in my business and my industry in particular, and I think that's transcendent to most industries, that the companies that thrive and succeed really intimately understand their customers and, uh, you know, have an emotional connection. I'm not talking about brand. I'm talking about being smart enough to listen between words and behaviors to really intimately understand their consumers or their audience, whoever it may be. Um, And I think that we forget too much about EQ in business. Mm -hmm. And that's why a lot of companies struggle. I think a lot of startups too, you know, small and big companies alike. Right, right. Uh, you know, Volkswagen is as much an example of that as, you know, some startups that just didn't listen to the marketplace, right? Like yeah. Lyft versus Uber. Mm-hmm. Right. So, I'm so glad to hear you say that because I think it's, you know, it, it is important. A lot of people still even today don't really um, know that much about EQ, how it affects business. Um, you know, it's about relationships and just um, really understanding, as you said, your your customer, your client, your um, your shareholders, and what ultimately they are looking for. Um, and and it is important. It all comes yeah. down to that. Yeah, and it's interesting. I just read an article morning or yesterday about that's probably the biggest mistake that a lot of people are conjecturing that Marissa Mayer made is that there was a very small investor that has become the largest activist and most vocal investor on her board. Um, That is the one that potentially is going to be the reason she's, you know, she's forced to exit. Um, And, you know, that is, you know, you're even if you're a CEO, you're a founder, or the boss lady, it doesn't matter. You're serving someone. Mm-hmm. And honestly, if you're a founder, my experience as a founder, you're working harder for yourself than you'd ever work for anybody else, right? Yes. So I think that we take for granted. And I'm, you know, I really, I often joke around that. Well, I've, I have two jobs that if I were to stop doing what I do today and you know, the first dream job would be I would get to name lipsticks and, and nail polishes because I think that would be really fun. <laughs> um, the second would be that I would just study the intersection of like, you know, sociology and sort of anthropology and technology and how that's impacted human mm, relationships. Yeah, I love because that I'm really stuff. curious yep. to see. Yeah, I'm just really curious to see what emotional toolkit 
you know, what, what the EQ toolkit is of millennials and the generations beyond them, given how much reliance upon there is on, um, you know, on sort of uh, technology for socialization Mm -hmm. and this sort of concatenation and, you know, brevity with which communication occurs. Like when I graduated from university, you know, um, still wasn't that long ago, but we had to write letters on watermarked paper, right? I don't know if you remember this, like, and your the type of paper of the envelope had to match the, the actual letter paper itself and, you know, certain size, certain font, certain, et cetera. Um, you know, all that formality of long form. And I'm not sure that that is ever going to change business. And what's interesting is I think what used to be table stakes for sort of my generation, maybe in your generation, for millennials now, is actually what is going to enable them to rise above the noise. But yet they're also still going to have to have the ability to leverage technology and the rapid innovation, as you call it, and change, et cetera, and all these new channels that we interact and connect. Um, in order to be able to succeed in their jobs in whatever industry they may be. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. You know, even, you know, we used to, when I was growing up, we used to say, oh, I wonder what it's going to be like in the year, you know, 2020. (laughs) And now, you know, we're sitting here and I feel as though I'm always saying, what's going to to be out there next year? What's going to be out there in three years? but I think there's also like there's, you know, there's a timelessness, right? Because if I look at what I'm building today, right, my experience in manufacturing of industries that build tangible goods, right, products that you can put your hand around and you can touch and feel, mm-hmm. you know, they had business challenges, you know, their businesses grew, the number of plants, the number of customers, the number of countries in which they were doing business, right? And they sort of used systems, a, a software to connect their enterprise sort of horizontally, right? We call them enterprise level systems. And I, when I came over to media, I looked around the, and I looked at the proliferation of hardware and devices and how audiences' behaviors were changing and they weren't maybe watching as much TV or they were just watching, you know, more video on devices like their mobile or their computer. And I looked at all the different technologies and the systems and things like that. And I said, well, media, just because we don't sell a tangible good, we just sell time. Why do we not have you know, sort of this horizontal system that connects the media enterprise. And so what's really interesting is if I look at a lot of the business challenges that are, are facing media today as, a, as an industry, you know, they're not unlike and metaphoric sort of are analogous to other industries and the disruptions they've had, right? I mean, there are, if you look at what an industrial revolution is in other big industries, right, from, you know, sort of hand tool to automation, you know, uh, steam engine, you know, things like that. It's not unlike what's happening in television today where you don't need a cable box in order to get TV content, right? right? A lot of the things are analogous (laughs) and similar. Mm -hmm. Exactly. But, you know, it's it's a time, I think, an opportunity of humility to look to other industries, how they have solved business problems. It's not just about throwing technology at something to solve the business problems of today. And I think that is a very naive approach and perspective of a lot of our sort of industry leaders across multiple verticals and sectors today is that, you know, technology is just the fix. Quite often the solve is, again, about EQ and looking at talent and organizational structure and about building a more adaptable enterprise, mm-hmm. not a more technically, technologically enabled enterprise. They're very different. Um, and, you know, interesting, going back to sort of my, you know, my alpha female, 
one of the best books I've read lately that I'm telling everybody to read. I have a, a, a collection of books I asked that is now the onboarding kit, and I forced my team to read. The latest book I read is called Team of Teams, and it was written by General McChrystal, who led, you know, for a large part of the, the sort of conflict in Iraq and Afghanistan for the U.S. military. And, you know, he talks about, you know, becoming sort of, you know, how we've had hierarchical organizations. The military was very hierarchical. And all of a sudden now the enemy that we were fighting was a distributed network and, no, you know, of nodes mm, that was non-hierarchical yeah. and how we had to adapt. Yes. Business is no different, right? So whether it's military metaphors or sports metaphors, you know, ultimately business is the same. And I think that, you know, this idea of, of really looking at our organizations as more fluid because it's powered by more fluid technology, because our consumers are using technology to consume our products differently, you know, it's a very intuitive sort of thought logic that we need to follow and embrace and taking that step back and looking to other industries with humility for leadership uh, and guidance is something, you know, as sort of old school as the military, which is an example I just gave, I think is something that will serve all of us better as leaders within our own sectors. Wow, that's interesting. Really interesting. I'm going to I'm going to pick up that book. Um, listen, we have one minute left. Um, I'd love for you, number one, if, if, if anyone's listening and wants to get in touch with you, Ashley, what, uh, where can they find you? Uh, so easily can email me at Ashley, A-S-H-L-E-Y, at FuriousCorp.com. Okay. F-U-R-I-O-U-S-C-O-R-P.com. Mm-hmm. Um, or can, I welcome you to connect with me on LinkedIn as well. Um, and I wanted to, my last question, I just wanted to know if you had any aspirations to venture into another industry, um, you know, something outside of the advertising technology world. I do. Um, I'm looking at, on a, as a side project, starting a business with my family, um, with my father coming out of Vietnam. We're looking to start a Vietnamese coffee shop in New York. Um, and uh, my father will employ veterans to help with the roasting, and we will give some of the proceeds back to veterans. Uh, and I think that would be, there'd be nothing of which I'd be prouder of any of my accomplishments oh. than to create a business that would you know, create a legacy for my father in his time of service. So, yeah. Fantastic. That's fantastic. I'll add to that list. Don't worry. Okay. Listen, we'll be watching. We'll be watching. Thanks so much for being on the show.